Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. I'm Tyler Orton. And later on the show, Dr. Hanin Abu-Ramele, she's a co-founder of Low Community. She's going to discuss how her startup is offering more work flexibility for physicians and why it's facing maybe a little bit of pushback from other bodies. And coming up first, we have Sean Coakley from Cambridge Global Payments talking about some record-breaking job numbers out today. You're listening to BIV Today. Unemployment in Canada has fallen to its lowest level since 1976, and only then because that's when comparable data for unemployment first became available. The economy gained 94,000 jobs in November, according to Statistics Canada, and gains were driven primarily by full-time work. Joining me now on the line is Sean Coakley, market strategist with Cambridge Global Payments, with some insights into this. Sean, good to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. What would you say these numbers mean for the Canadian economy as a whole? Well, first of all, it's a shock. These numbers came in nine times higher than expected. So we had uh, 10,000 and change expected uh, uh, positions to open up last year. Instead, we saw 94,000. So it's a very, very significant number. Uh, and it's a sharp contrast to comparing to what's happened to the states for the same data releases that were released this morning where uh, U.S. employment figures came um, uh, far less than expected, about by uh, a quarter of uh, like 75 percent of what was expected that came in in the United States. So for the Canadian economy, really, we've actually seen like more of like a narrative shift where the concerns about a potential recession sometime next year are actually increasing largely on the back of uh, weakness in the housing sector in Vancouver as well as uh, basically slowing economic growth generally as well as what we're seeing in the oil and gas sector in Alberta which has been really really problematic. Uh, Really this this Data is just one single point in time, but overall, it, it kind of matches uh, like a like a like a trend of somewhat better than expected employment data against mm-hmm. uh, expectations that were actually quite low to begin with. So, it it is an outlier, and it does show that there is more resiliency and more strength in the Canadian economy than many have anticipated. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the future is necessarily materially more brighter now than it was, say, six weeks ago when we had an entirely different type of employment report. Fair enough. Now, why? What's your best guess in terms of why the estimates were so far off? What were some of the big surprises? Well, so more... More than anything, it's just a matter of uh, people have become, or market forecasters have become much more pessimistic mm. about the, the potential for the Canadian economy. If you look at what's been driving economic growth for the last few years, it's pri- primarily been uh, consumer-led economic growth, largely consumer and real estate uh, related. So with the, the real key of that was a lot of debt-backed financing, a lot of um, um, Canadians using equity in their homes to purchase other homes or to purchase consumer products. And that's been driving a lot of economic activity for the last few years. And when we started to see um, credit conditions get tighter and interest rates move higher, 
really the 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 conceit was that 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 would have a significant moderating impact on economic growth in Canada. And so far, the the verdict on that of whether or not it's actually happening is still out. Um, we have seen a slowing in pace of economic growth, but when we see data figures like we saw today in terms of what's actually happening in the employment uh, or in the labor markets, it's really an open question as to whether or not if that happens, if it's going to happen soon, or what the nature of uh, potential slowdown in the Canadian economy uh, is going to look like if and when it happens. Mm-hmm. And I know stats can, they noted that a lot of the gains are coming from full-time work, which is always a good sign, especially when you think that it wasn't that long ago, part-time work was sort of taking over and replacing full-time jobs. What do you sort of make of that piece that it's full-time jobs driving the November stats? It's really impressive. It's actually, it's really impressive. And the other component of it that it may not actually catch so much attention is that the two leading geographies for employment growth were Quebec and Alberta, with Alberta um, just trailing uh, Quebec in terms of employment growth on a far smaller base in terms of what their economy, economic size is. We really have a lot of headlines that show that um, economic growth in Alberta should be weaker than what, what's been illustrated in the latest report. So these are all factors that are actually quite good for the Canadian economy. When you take a look at them both in aggregate and then if you disaggregate the data into like geography and employment types, the overall employment report itself was very high quality. Uh, the only bone of contention that I would have with that is the fact that uh, wage growth is actually kind of moderated as well. And when we see wage growth performing as it has in the last uh, few months, really that's an indication that the Bank of Canada might slow down on its interest rate increases as well. So that mm-hmm. also has knock-on effects later on in the, in the economy. And given how far we are into the economic cycle, there is that risk that higher interest rates will tip us into like a cyclical uh, or at the end of the cyclical cycle, which would be um, a slowdown in economic growth or a recession. But we haven't really seen that happen yet. Right. Help me now understand what's going on in British Columbia, because we uh, we saw quite a significant drop in full-time work, a drop of 17.5% and a 33.4% rise in part-time work. And this is unique to us when you look across the country. Yeah, I can't. I haven't disaggregated the data in terms of industries in BC, but the presumption would be that um, one of the largest employers or areas of economic growth for BC has been the construction sector, and mm-hmm. we've we've seen somewhat of a moderation in housing starts uh, activity in North America, so in the United States, but also in Canada and BC follows that trend as well. So when we start to see less investment in real estate or uh, industrial construction, that actually leads to uh, lower employment in that sector. Now, that's just a presumption. It may not be true. I haven't looked that deep into the data, but I'd really expect that if we start to see uh, labor or employment weakness in BC, it's going to be the construction sector that is going to be the low-hanging fruit for any sort of negative changes. It'll hit that sector first. 
Interesting. It's something to watch for. We also have, we've been leading the country in terms of our unemployment rate for November. It's now at 4.4%, still very low. Uh, what kind of impact does that have on an economy when your unemployment rate is that low? Well, it's positive. So it's it's obviously positive. What you really need to see, though, if you want to really see how tight the labor market is, is wage growth. So we haven't seen wage growth um, really pick up in a way that, that you would think would would be indicative of a tightening labor market. It could be a distributional issue, like the fact that employers are still more powerful than employees in terms of negotiating wage increases. Mm-hmm. So that may be a factor that's keeping wage growth down. Uh, but Really, if we want if we want the full picture, yeah, we have to look at employment and wage growth at the same time. Now, employment's been fantastic. Wage growth is kind of mediocre, uh, especially in the last few months. Well, and as we start to see BC get closer to a fifteen dollar minimum wage, do you think that could maybe have some kind of an an impact on our unemployment rate here? Yeah, it will. If you look at like, so Stats Canada has actually, and uh, Bank of Canada have actually done some analysis or, or analyses rather on the impact of higher uh, wages, uh, specifically minimum wages on the the economy. And basically what happens is that the positive effect eventually gets net out by higher inflation and lower employment. So what we typically see when we see minimum wage increases is that employers uh, decide to employ less people because their labor costs have gone up. And the people that maintain their jobs now have more purchasing power, but that purchasing power in essence gets negated to a certain extent because when you're, say, operating a pizza shop, your payroll expenses are probably a significant component of your overall expenses, and you need to pass off those costs to your end consumer eventually. So there's usually some sort of inflationary effect that negatively or that mitigates some of the positive effect that you see from a wage growth perspective. Um, so overall, the increasing minimum wages is not necessarily the the most impactful way of improving living conditions for people on the lower end of the the, the economic or employment spectrum. There's other avenues that they could take, um, but. Um, in in essence, it's a it's a good political topic to talk about. It's something that gets a lot of people interested in having this discussion, but it's not necessarily going to lead to like a materially better outcome mm. for the people that it impacts. Fair enough. As we wrap up here, Sean, you mentioned that there's been some pessimism about the outlook for the Canadian economy. And I think it's fair to say 2018 was certainly a year of a lot of risks, a lot of uncertainty on the economic front. At the end of the year, though, or just a couple of weeks away, what do you think the actual story was for the Canadian economy? What what did the year tell us? It's pretty well. If you look at it retrospectively, what it really highlights is the resiliency of the Canadian economy, and we've been buffeted. We've been buffeted on in many different sides, from oil and gas, from credit markets, uh, from a housing market that in Vancouver at least has gotten away from the average consumer, and it now looks like it's actually gotten extremely soft. 
but we're still here and we're still uh, see pretty good employment. We're seeing pretty good empl- uh, economic growth. We may end up uh, in an economic slowdown, like the, eventually everything's cyclical. But at the end of the day, the, uh, the fundamentals of the Canadian economy are stro- far stronger than you would see in most other developed markets. So that's something that 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 us as Canadians should be aware of and proud of because even though we may see uh, uh, some difficult times in the future, the 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 long-term potential, the long-term um, growth or long-term prospects for this country are better than nearly all other developed markets. So that's that's really been illustrated in 2018, the fact that we've been resilient through all these, these headwinds. And I think that that story will continue throughout the future as well. Mm, not a bad place to be at all. Sean, as always, thanks for coming on the show. Wow, well, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. That's Sean Coakley, market strategist with Cambridge Global Payments. Our next guest is somebody who no doubt relates to the stresses of work schedules. Judging by the startup she has just co-founded uh, back in 2017, Low Community is an online job posting site for clinics and physicians looking to fill in some placements. And with us now, it's Dr. Hanin Abu-Ramele. She is the co-founder of Low Community. Dr. Hanin Abu-Ramele, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. So, I have to ask you this. Did you find you were having your own struggles with finding a flexible work schedule, or was this really something that was not hard to figure out based on what you're seeing with colleagues? Yeah, it was basically what I was seeing with colleagues. So I did my medical schooling here at UBC, but went to Calgary for my residency training, and I did my residency training in family medicine and built up a professional network over two years. So in medicine, there's a lot of travel that happens during training. Uh, There's a national matching system that happens after you graduate med school. So medical students end up anywhere in the country for the residency training. And when I graduated, there was a strong pull to move back home to Vancouver. My, uh, My dad was ill, et cetera. And so when I moved back, I left that professional network I had built, which is a common scenario in um, a lot of graduating residents. Uh, and my question was like, where do doctors find jobs? And the, what I wanted to do was uh, practice as a substitute doctor, which is termed locum tenens or uh, short, uh, shortened to locums in, in the industry. So uh, I wanted to locum or co- provide coverage for doctors who were going on vacation or leave. And I very high demand for such coverage. A lot of physicians feel trapped in their practices, unable to step away uh, for whatever reason, whether it's a leave or uh, vacation, etc. And the only way that these doctors could find me was through word of mouth or in the hallways. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, I I eventually through word of mouth would be booked a year and a half in advance with people asking me like, I mean, not this December, but like next July, can you please (laughs) cover me or next August? Uh, And so, uh, yeah, and then, you know, just kept seeing how the medical literature was talking about physician burnout and over 50% of primary care physicians experienced burnout. There was a big CMA study that came out uh, about that this year, but this is well documented in the literature. And one of the top four reasons in Canada is inability to find coverage and smaller cities, rural areas really struggled to recruit and retain physicians. uh, And it's a national priority to find a better physician recruitment strategy. So the idea of this centralized search tool 
um, kind of the Airbnb search, if you uh, if you may, for locum physicians came to me when when I experienced that friction, but then just kind of kept getting reminded about it through the medical literature. And I said, you know what, I'm going to do something about this because I think the solution is pretty simple and elegant here. It's not a complicated solution. Uh, and, uh, you know, eventually it took me some time to find a technical co-founder, sure. et cetera. But uh, when I did, um, you know, we started working on this part time. I never envisioned that this would take over my life. And uh, but uh, it has. <laughs> so uh, we launched the beta um, launch in Canada, April 2017 uh, and got great traction. We have currently about 1400 physicians registered across the country, 300 clinics. Uh, and we had the opportunity to uh, apply and get accepted to Techstars Seattle, which is a prestigious tech accelerator. Uh, and that was kind of the, the decision maker for are we all willing to go on this full time? And so that was January of this uh, of this year. And uh, and we did. And, uh, you know, it was my mat leave. I had a three month old baby. And so the whole family, the co-founders, everyone moved to Seattle for about four months to attend this tech accelerator uh, which was great and awesome experience. Uh, and then we came back to Canada and implemented a lot of the things we learned about how to grow what's called a marketplace. What we have is a two-sided marketplace that we not only have to get physicians on the platform, but also populate jobs on the platform. Uh, so, so yeah, we've uh, yeah we've uh, done well, and and uh, uh, I think our biggest limitation as a startup is just budget and marketing budget, et cetera, and, and having physicians know that we exist as a resource. Well, I'm very fascinated here with regards, and you alluded to this just a moment ago, but that kind of transition that you're making right now from you know being a physician into getting into the business side of things, you said is kind of taking over your life to a certain degree. How has that transition been going for you at this point? Yeah, I mean, I am very lucky in that uh, as a the locum physician is kind of the freelancer of medicine, and that's becoming more and more popular. But what it allows me to do, uh, I mean, my passion is medicine. It's been my life calling. Uh, and so uh, I see this as an extension of my role as a physician solving an issue on a systemic level. Uh, so for me, I'm able to still keep my medical license by doing, I do baby delivery, so I do uh, two call shifts uh, a month on the weekends, uh, and then occasionally pick up half a day here, half a day there at clinics through my own platform, actually. So uh, it, it helps not only keep my uh, license and credibility as a physician, but also actually helps me grow my business. So I'm very lucky in that way in that maintaining both roles is very crucial, being a physician and CEO um, and not letting go of the physician side is, is important to grow my business, thankfully, uh, because to me internally, I, you know, the, it, I didn't go to medical school thinking I'd create a business. Sure. I see this as solving a problem. Yeah. I, I love the idea that you're able to use your own platform to solve this issue and, and maintain your own passion going forward. That, that's kind of a great sort of universal story, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, how, just explain a little bit about how the platform works. We're, mm -hmm. uh, like I said, an online centralized marketplace that directly connects uh, job seeking physicians, specifically locums that we're focused on right now. So these substitute doctors with clinics across Canada. And we are a tech enabled platform. So we are very data driven and community driven. So uh, my co founder and CTO comes from a market research background. So we're collecting data points at every point in the physician job search process, creating live feedback loops to the employer to give them 
uh, feedback on their job posting so that you're not doing a post and pray approach. Uh, eventually, as we gather more data, that we can create uh, predictable model uh, predictable models uh, and be able to use a, a little bit of machine learning and AI to really determine like, you, you know, three clinics may be looking for a family doctor and I'm a family physician, but I may fit very well into one clinic, but not the two others. And what is it beyond my credentials that creates that culture fit? And so really teasing out how can you, how can we transcend beyond a job posting board and be really this uh, data-driven, uh, AI-driven platform? Well, I'm curious, though, is there a bit of a push and pull that you face as you look to gain traction, as you look to apply this to other jurisdictions? Obviously, you know, there, there's a, a dire need for this amongst the uh, physician community. Are you getting any pushback at all from, say, different jurisdictions that are like, well, wait a minute, uh, would this really work within, you know, our, our government or our agency, for example? Yeah, I mean, look, when I started this, I did research, like, do I create this as a not-for-profit or do I go for the for-profit route? And I talked to a lot of business advisors, et cetera, who strongly recommended if I wanted something that's going to make change, grow quickly, uh, attract capital, attract talent, uh, that I would have to go the for-profit route. And that was the reason I decided to, to go that way. Uh, and, uh, you know, part of being a startup is being nimble and, and quick and, and not waiting for, you know, uh, months and months to, to uh, enforce action or create change. Uh, and yes, I mean, I, I think I was disappointed a little bit in that I thought, look, like I'm a physician innovating. I not only identified a problem uh, that was well recognized as a priority nationally, um, but also came up with a solution and implemented it. Uh, so to me, I thought there would be more support. Um, there's a lot of talk right now about physician innovation and supporting physician innovation, but I truly felt that um, once I did take that step and, and presented something, that there was uh, quite a bit of pushback from uh, governmental organizations whose mandate was to solve the exact problem I'm solving. Uh, and I think that's just going to take time and, and change. So for example, one of the things that we were doing is aggregating the job search onto our platform. So any public job posting that was out there, we were kind of centralizing it on our platform, linking back to the original link, but at least allowing that physician, sparing them time instead of checking 10 job posting boards, you're checking just the one job posting board and mm -hmm. only linking out if you feel that you're interested. Um, and we actually just faced that, you know, I just received a cease and desist order from one of, I won't name, but one of the governmental organizations uh, asking me to stop um, centralizing or aggregating those their jobs onto our platform. Uh, and in my mind, you know, taxpayers' money is going towards their organization and their mandate is to find coverage for the family doctors that they're posting jobs for. And so, you know, I think the Canadian government has been pretty good about um, open data and, and uh, encouraging that. But I think in medicine and healthcare, that there's still definitely a lag uh, and uh, a lack of realization that if you open up this data, uh, private companies can can find better ways and solve solutions quickly uh, that can help the, the ecosystem in general. Well, I, I think you, if we bring it back to that physician burnout question, I, I would hope that you know we can get some recognition of how dire this is. How do you envision a, a platform like this actually helping, say, the medical uh, system overall in Canada moving forward? Yeah, I think there's, uh, you know, a lot of benefits to it. So uh, one is that, uh, you know, family physicians uh, won't feel trapped in their practices. So, for example, we had a family physician who 
I was on maternity leave and was only able to find coverage for four months. And ideally, she had wanted to take six months with her baby. Uh, and uh, Low Community was able to extend that coverage for her because we connected her with a wide um, uh, pool of locum physicians. Uh, and so, you know, she was very grateful and she's one of our avid supporters. Uh, but that's one story of many. And we've met so many doctors throughout. Uh, you know, I've gone clinic to clinic to tell physicians about this resource in the Vancouver Lower Mainland. And the stories of I've heard of, of physicians who haven't taken a proper vacation for 20 years sometimes. Like they've only taken stats or long weekends and that's about it. Uh, it's crazy to think about. And so that's one thing. It's the currently existing physicians helping them with uh, relief and, and finding uh, coverage for their patients so that when so that they are able to step away from the practice. Well, I and think... The second, oh, oh, go, sorry. go ahead. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, I, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's encouraging young physicians. I think there has definitely been a shift away from young physicians who are graduating to create a permanent practice. And and for me, that was it, too. I mean, I, I saw during my training the, that, that stress and burnout. Uh, and I knew that, you know, if I was to have a young family, uh, which I, now I do to two young kids, and those mat- maternity leaves, if I was in the locum, I would have had to ha- have someone cover my practice. And the headache of, of doing that, knowing the existing system at the time, uh, is a deterrent for young physicians to create a permanent practice. And then for patients. Uh, you know, if, if if your physician just closes their office for a week, you're ending up at a walk-in clinic, it's, uh, seeing a doctor who has no access to your records versus having seen a, a substitute doctor at your uh, physician's clinic who, ha- who just continues your care. Um, so I think it definitely touches upon um, uh, the quadruple aim, if you, if you may. So the patient's happiness, the physician's wellness. Uh, and uh, kind of the ecosystem kind of working all together to, to improve health benefits. Well, uh, doctor, I, I think it's always great to see innovation within the health sector here. And I think if anybody's interested in finding out more, uh, I'll spell out Low Community. I, I love the name of the company, by the way, but I'll mm-hmm. spell it out so you can Google it. It is L-O-C-U-M-U-N-I-T-Y. Uh, go ahead and find it there. In the meantime, thanks for joining us on the program today. Thank you very much for having me. That is Dr. Hanin Abu Ramele. She is the co-founder of Low Community, and that's it for the show today. You can find our archives on iTunes and Stitcher, so subscribe there or else tell your friends to go download. I want to thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week. 